A good Friday morning to you, Real Talkers. I know if you're tuning in live, if you're if you're one of the hardcores, the Real Talkers that's tuning in live right now, if you were checking your clock and you're like, this guy's like 30 seconds behind where he's normally at. There's like 30 seconds, um, you know, not late. We don't prefer the term late here. Uh, but about 30 seconds behind where you'd like to ideally be. This is the language. This is the perspective of someone who's typically late for everything. This is how our minds operate. Not late. There's qualifiers like fashionably late, for example, that we can adopt. Uh, but I'm very excited because I, I needed 30 extra seconds and uh, it appears as though it has not worked. Never mind. Damn it. <laughs> I was so excited to make an announcement. I was going to show you guys my phone. Everybody that's watching here on YouTube, it has a hard time under the studio lights, doesn't it? There we go. I wanted to show you my Instagram because I got something really exciting yesterday. I, I, I was granted an opportunity, but I blew it because I don't know what I'm doing. But I can now I can now include on my Instagram stories. If you follow me on Instagram, thank you. A few of you finally pushed me over 10,000 followers the other day, which was really exciting. Not just because I get to come on real talk and, and, and sort of like casually drop like 10,000 followers because I know that there are there are people that are friends of this program that have like 100,000 followers or 250,000 followers. So so they don't care about 10,000. But the reason that 10,000 is significant is because it gives me the option to 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 include the swipe up on my Instagram story. Right. Sorry. What was how does it go? The again? Swipe up <laughs> is how it goes. And um, thank so, you for clarifying. I needed the clarification. And so I was really excited because, you know, I do I do like a, a moderately decent job of of uh, like I do. I do a very good job on Twitter of letting everybody know who's going to be on the show. And then I kind of like cop out and, and just screen grab my tweet and post it on Instagram story. It's kind of like a half assed way. Like I don't we don't have we don't have the the horsepower. We don't have the what's the word I'm looking for? The, the bandwidth on the team yet. Uh, yet. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Not yet. We don't yet have our dedicated digital producer uh, who's going to be able to go ahead and do all these things for me and basically take my phone over and do all these like awesome things. And you see, I can't I don't know the phrases to use. I don't even know the terms, but you're kind of like on trend in that a lot of people are just basically taking stuff from twitter posting it on instagram and vice versa and, and social then media TikTok and like they say don't ever do that well no but now people are kind of like eh yeah and it's, ha it's happening well it's because it's it's like um what would be an example what would what would be a good example i'm trying to think hmm you gardening uh, if you want, if if you decided, and maybe this is a bad example, I'm, I'm probably going to get halfway through the metaphor and then realize <laughs> and, then that, and, shit. and realize that it's a terrible <laughs> one, which wouldn't be anything new. But if you decided that you were going to have a dedicated rock garden, and then you were also going to have a vegetable garden, you know what's a better one? Fish tanks. If okay. you decide, if you decided that you were going to have like fish bowls, saltwater fish tanks. Freshwater fish tanks, all these different types and species of, I was going to say brands of fish species, <laughs> which just, by the way, goes to show my subconscious of how we treat fish different than other animals on planet Earth. This goes back to our ethics of eating. Nobody cares about fish. People care about dolphins. They care about whales. They don't care about fish. Well, dolphins, aren't they actually mammals? mammals? Live births. Yeah, that's right. Whales, too. Yeah. So, yeah. So that just it just goes to show yeah. nobody cares about fish. Um, but, but what I find is like in, in bringing this back loosely 
to social media. If you try to be a jack of all trades, for example, if, if whether it was your gardening or your fish tanks or whatever you were trying to do, it's the same sort of a thing as someone like me who currently has about seven books on the go. I'm reading about seven different books, which means that honestly, I'm reading none of them. Because I'm jumping around back and forth and I got to go back and read the first, read the chapter again. And I don't remember what's going on. And I've had a few scotches half the time. And I really I don't even remember what the book's about. You know what I mean? And so you're, you're like, OK, well, I want to be really good on Instagram or I want to be really effective on Twitter or I want to make sure that I that I squeeze the most out of uh, LinkedIn or TikTok or whatever. All the other ones that I can't even remember. Snapchat. Do people still use Snapchat? Probably. No, not really. No, it's not a thing anymore. Well, I mean, it's or are there. we just old? No, it's there. But I feel like TikTok is kind of, um, yeah, shoved the yeah. Snapchat a little further to the. Which makes you wonder then, what about all the people that worked so hard to build a big Snapchat following? Like, and it just disappears, right? So, so yeah. social media. So the point of all this is, is well, the first point is that there's no point, and and then if there were to be one. It would be that social media managers, which is a real job. It's an important job. These folks are like, I mean, they can take businesses performance, you know, sort of and skyrocket it. They can, you know, identify where a business could really gain some ground and blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's kind of this emerging profession and they do a really smart job and they will say, don't ever just take your Instagram post and don't take your Twitter, you know, your tweet and put it on Instagram. Don't take your Instagram post and just put it on Facebook. You know, it's just not how it works and it's not effective and people sniff it out from a mile away. Yeah. I mean, there's the different, there's different language and different, you know, with hashtags, it's kind of like poo poo to put a hashtag on Facebook. And although LinkedIn says, yes, definitely use a hashtag. Yeah. Who actually does that? But what's what I've been seeing a lot of lately is that people will do screen grabs of tweets and then put them over onto On Instagram Insta. stories. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know those rules? Now we're going to throw those rules out. Yeah, so I, have no, so I have no idea what I'm doing. But but all of this to say, and, and kudos to me, really, because it only took me seven minutes to make a point arguably not even worth making. What this what this really is is trying to drive people to my Instagram and my Twitter. I'm just I'm so subtle. It's amazing. I tried to give you all today the swipe up. I was so excited to say here's who's on the show. Swipe up to tune into Real Talk, and it, and I blew it big time. It's not working. And I also see that so far, well, actually, a whole bunch of people are checking it out now, which is great. So it's working. But uh, maybe someone can school me. I mean, my wife is amazing at this. She can teach me how to do it. I thought I did it. I blew it. While you're on my Insta story, check it out. I, I have a, a video of the brand new Jeep Wrangler 4xE at St. Albert Dodge. It's the one that I checked out and test drove yesterday, plus a couple photos of those Dodge demons they have. In there are 840 horsepower. I was talking to a guy, a buddy. I said, hey, man, I was talking to him on the phone after I swung by St. Albert Dodge. And I said, are you familiar? He's a car guy. I go, are you familiar with the Dodge Demon? And, you know, when you ask somebody like, you know, whether it's like a, a real like a music snob, like a hipster. And if you were to say something like, have you ever heard of like the weekend or like Vampire Weekend or like something? And they'd be like. They'd be rolling their eyes so hard they'd be giving themselves a migraine and they'd be like, uh, yeah. And then they'd be like, what, like nine years ago? They'd probably something like that. So my buddy, I go, have you ever heard of the Dodge Demon? He goes, yeah. I'm like 840 horsepower. He goes, yeah. And 10 grand for tires, 10 grand for tires every two weeks. 
I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, that's not an official. I think he's just saying if he were to own an 840 horsepower Mopar machine, he'd be ripping through tires like nobody's business. Yeah, tires would not last long. Not the official position of no, relay no, communications or no, real talk. We no. recommend, uh, we insist that everyone follow all posted speed limits at all times. Uh, we're going to be talking about crypto uh, coming up in a little bit. And uh, we're going to be uh, getting into I, I, my basic question is, is, is Elon Musk the puppet master of cryptocurrency? Is this what it's going to be? And we've got some great emails from folks when we told you that we were going to be talking to Vishesh Raisinghani, uh, a financial marketer, and Adam O'Brien, the, the president, uh, the founding CEO of Bitcoin. Well, about this, we started getting emails from people that were like, hey, if you're going to be talking crypto, can you please ask this? We love these types of emails. So uh, we're going to be getting into some of those. And, and they come from varying positions, obviously, people at different sort of levels of awareness. And then our roundtable today, our Real Talk roundtable is going to be a great one talking about barriers in sport. So we're going to talk to the founder of Tigers Skate Club, uh, which is a really neat initiative, a skateboarding club that's 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 all for, for women and, and girls. And well, Sarah, as if I'm going to sit here and pretend like you're not a member of Tigers Skate Club, instead of me explaining what it's all about to with the person who participates four feet away, Tigers Skate Club is all about. Well, it's really about just getting uh, inviting everyone to come and hang out and to learn skateboarding. I mean, I during the pandemic, you know, you want to get outside, you want to and I, I always want to learn new things. So I tried out skateboarding for the first time and they invite folks of all ages. And I got to also admit, like in junior high, when all the guys like and yeah, all the guys were skateboarding. Yeah. I just kind of hung out on the edge because I was like, oh, I can't do that. But you I, wanted to. Oh, 100%. 100%. And so, yeah, just during the pandemic, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm not going to hang out on the sideline anymore. I'm going to go in. And then I found out about Tiger Skate Club, who are, it's it's led by women and, uh, and non-binary folks. And we we were, were just like, they, they do like sessions and teach you different skills. I mean, I am so novice. So, so, so. So not. Do you at least get to do cool things like like when you were like learning skateboarding back in the day that would be part of the deal? Like do, like do people sort of bring in like cigarettes they stole from their dad <laughs> and everybody passes them around? And, but they're like the, the like old ones, the dry ones that they found in the oh, garage. Oh, menthol. They found the <laughs> menthol. I didn't say you stole from grandma. I said well, you stole. Well, that's what ended up happening when I was in junior high. They were like, guys, I got some cigarettes. You want to know a story that nobody's been reporting? That I would love to do a deep dive on. We need to. We need to. Uh, I mean, this would be like a journalist. You'd have to disappear for a few days. You'd have to go undercover. Right. Um, we, we'd have to come up with a budget, which would be no problem for you to travel around the province because you'd be road tripping to small communities. When the federal government under Stephen Harper outlawed things like flavored rolling papers and 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 flavored sort of novelty cigars and things like that and uh most notably i think menthol cigarettes mm. right because they were saying these are marketed to kids these are for kids and everyone was laughing going they're for they're for grandmothers menthol cigarettes the the largest demographic uh if you were to sell menthol cigarettes in a casino exclusively to grandmothers you would be able to buy Whatever you wanted for the rest of your life, your financial security would be unparalleled. Do you have the data to back this up? No. <laughs> 
I'm a talk show host, not a scientist. Okay, fair enough. So, but I'm curious to know. No, okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was gonna go. So, Tiger Skate Club. So, Tiger Skate Club. <laughs> no, we're already past that. <laughs> what we're actually doing for people that may want to is we're experiencing some technical difficulties behind the scenes, and you and I are just stretching and stretching. Everybody's waiting for the opener. You guys are a massive help. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sam is just working furiously behind the scenes, so, and, and I'm like, hey, no problem, pal. I'll just talk about menthol cigarettes for 14 minutes. Um, but, but in all seriousness, are you telling me? Like with the addictive power of nicotine, with with the with the 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 habits that form around something like menthol, when people of all age groups, and I'm having fun, obviously, with the over older demographic, but you know whether it's whether it's Lamb's Navy Rum or menthol cigarettes or whatever, it's like you know you've watched your show, you have your flavor, mm, you have yeah. your drink, you have your routine. Are you telling me that hundreds of thousands of little old ladies across Canada? Quit menthols, cold turkey, not a chance. So where are all these otherwise law-abiding little old ladies getting their menthol cigarettes these days? You cannot tell me they quit. You cannot tell me they're off the menthols. Not a chance. And I want to know where all these cartons of menthols are falling off the trucks. And I want to know how the little old ladies are getting them. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of a racket that's going into long time. I mean, I, be, I may be messing with the Hell's Angels right now. I mean, I don't even. I might be stepping into a bear trap. I have no idea. But who's yeah. drop? Who's who's making all these menthols available? And how can we get in on the action? If you know what I'm saying, this Luke is a cash only business. If you know what I'm saying. Put it this way: if we add a digital producer and a roving journalist in the same month, chances are we're cashing in on black market menthols. I know, top first story out of the gates. Menthol cigarettes. Menthol cigarettes. Black market. And, and we'll do like, we'll do big openers, like, to, you know, openers like sort of all artistic. And the music will come up and it'll, and, it'll, and it'll be like, little old ladies, who's buying the menthols and where? A Real Talk Report presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. If you have questions about, cure, uh, you know, crypto, I mean, if you're curious about where it's going or, or I mean, aside from the fact that just keep it locked right here, because in a second we're going to get into it with two experts. But on a daily basis, if you're trying to explore the idea around financial sovereignty, what does that actually look like? How could crypto fit into your longer term plan? You're going to want to book a chat with the team at Bitcoin. Well, real live humans that welcome the tough questions to help you make sense out of something that's new for a lot of folks. You can find them right at the top of the page as our presenting sponsor under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So if you've been paying attention to, to, I mean, this isn't even just paying attention to markets. It's not paying attention to trends just in crypto. This is this is a story that makes news, period, when somebody like one of the, the world's most prominent inventors, entrepreneurs, uh, Elon Musk, whether it's on Saturday Night Live or whether it's via his Twitter account, when he comments on crypto, the markets bump. And if, and if it's Doge, and I barely know what I'm talking about, our, our next two guests will take us into it. But if it's Dogecoin, it, it, it bumps up. And if it's Bitcoin, it seems to trend downward. And a lot of people are going, well, is Elon Musk just controlling this whole thing? Is this whole thing just a social experiment? Vishesh Raising, and he is a financial marketer, contributes to The Motley Fool. Adam O'Brien is the president and founding CEO of Bitcoin Well. Welcome to the both of you. It's great to have you here on Real Talk. Adam, you've you, you've changed up your background. You, what is this now? Like, this is like the this is the Bitcoin Well Lounge. What's going on now? 
Well, it's, it's just the backside of my computer, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying something out in terms of uh, different ambiance for, for speaking about things and, and, you know, seeing what I, I like this, this setup that you have, man. This is like, you're this talk show host. You've got this fancy microphone. I feel, yes. I feel important here. This must be how you feel all the time. You have a, well, I feel very important all the time, uh, but you have, you have a real, you have kind of like a Howard Stern studio vibe going on right now. Very well done. And Vishesh making uh, your real talk debut. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, why don't we start with, I want to get both of your assessment on this. I want to encourage the two of you to interact with each other. You don't have to wait for a question from me. Elon Musk. I mean, is, is this a puppet master type situation? People are going, Hey, listen, I'm all over the idea of getting into crypto i'm wide open-minded to it but if one guy has the power to control the value of it like to the tune of 20 percent either way with something as simple as a tweet what am i supposed to make of this vishesh what would you tell people Brian, thanks for having me on and thanks for uh, getting me here to speak about this i know there's some concern from people who are not part of the industry who would say that one person has way too much influence and in a certain degree uh, it's true yes Elon Musk's tweets do have market moving power right now but the issue that he brought up was a conversation that the Bitcoin community was having for at least 12 years prior to this so this is a genuine issue that he's turned up about uh, the energy consumption it's just been around for 12 years and he's just caught on to it right now another thing I'd say is uh, to a certain degree, I think Elon Musk's uh, influence is exaggerated because if he had all the influence in the world, Dogecoin would have been $1 right now. That's what the community was talking about before he went on to SNL. Uh, I'm sure Adam would agree with that. Uh, after SNL, in fact, the price of Dogecoin fell. And the fact that Bitcoin is falling right now, I would say is also partly the fact that tech stocks are falling and Bitcoin is correlated to a certain degree with tech stocks. It's not completely Elon Musk's fault that it's falling right now. That's what I would say, in my opinion. Adam, would you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the the power that Elon has isn't just related to Bitcoin either, or even just to 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 crypto. I mean, Elon talks about uh, what was it, GameStop, uh, not too long ago, and that and that shoots up uh, Elon's infamous tweet about funding secured, uh, and and Tesla stock shoots up. I think that uh, you know he's got power over multiple markets. I think that where crypto is so unique to all the other markets is that it's. Uh, it's actual trading is largely unregulated. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, the TSX or, or the NASDAQ closes at, at, at 5 p.m. Um, and it's closed on weekends and it's closed on holiday Monday. Uh, but Bitcoin never sleeps, baby. It is, it is open 24-7, 365. And so um, I think that uh, we've got these news cycles. And we've got how things turn around in the market and in the news. And I think that uh, Bitcoin's kind of gains and, and losses in the market are are exaggerated exponentially based on the powerful individuals tweeting or talking about it on SNL or what have you. And totally agree. Um, you know, the, the Doge, the Doge army, um, as they speak are a, a little bit quiet now after Elon called it a hustle, which is what Doge coin is. It's a total joke. Um, and, and quite different from, from Bitcoin in its, in its financial, uh, sovereignty powers. But, um, yeah, I would agree with, uh, with most of what you said there, Vishaj, let's, let's get into that because I, I never want to take for granted. One of the interesting things about the audience, one of the things, quite frankly, that makes a conversation like this challenging is that people are at very different levels of of awareness or understanding or even in some cases interest when it comes to crypto. And so they're, they're going to be going, I'm barely wrapping my mind around blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin and what that is. And then they'll, they'll say my next door neighbor is talking about Ethereum. And then what's this thing about Dogecoin? And like, quite frankly, what the hell is going on? How would you evaluate or assess the difference between Dogecoin 
and Bitcoin? So Dogecoin is based on uh, the Litecoin network. It is based on the, let, let, let me start with the basics, to be honest. It does have a blockchain on the background. It does have some of the same principles as um, Bitcoin initially, but it's a fork that was created by this reporter, I think, who wanted to uh, see show the world how easy it was just to mess with this technology, if you will. And he did admit that it was a joke. He put it out there in the world and he said, do what you want with this, but this is just, it's a joke. It shouldn't be treated as anything else than that. The thing is the community, and this shows the power of something that's based on a community, has taken it much beyond that. They've put actual money into it, which is why it's worth so much right now. But as Adam said, it is at the end of the day, still a joke. It's still a meme. Whereas Bitcoin, the community, as well as the asset is trying to create something genuine. It's trying to create an alternative to the rest of the financial market. That's how I would say the difference is working. I'd probably jump in there too and just highlight like, while the technology is similar and, and yes, there's a blockchain behind it and it's, it's, we'll call it fairly decentralized. Um, I think that the the monetary policy behind Bitcoin is 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 what gives Bitcoin its steam and kind of what gives Bitcoin its value. Um, I think that when you have a deflationary asset, which is what Bitcoin is, uh, meaning there is less and less that goes into circulation over time, uh, that is the exact opposite of, of Dogecoin or the Canadian dollars, inflationary uh, monetary policy, which is that there is more and more and more Doge and Canadian dollars and fiat money coming into the world at any given time. And so, in that in and of itself is enough, I think, to make a significant distinction to the differences between uh, kind of Bitcoin and every other uh, altcoin and uh, cryptocurrency out there. Adam, you and I and, and, and I've also spoken with other you know, financial experts on the show about uh, China's move to a to a digital currency, a digital yuan. And it's it's, it's an interesting story to follow. Um, and certainly will become more relevant. And I would imagine that that more countries will will be exploring these avenues. But this week on Tuesday, China essentially banning uh, financial and payment institutions from providing cryptocurrency services. The country also warning investors against speculative crypto trading. I'm sure we could hit this from a million different angles. So I'll ask both of you, uh, Vishesh, how, how significant? I mean, if you look at the price of what Bitcoin did after China made the announcement, it was pretty significant. It, it pushed it down below uh, 40 G's. U.S., uh, which considering where it's been this year is is not insignificant. How big of a deal do you think that the Chinese story is? Pretty significant. I'd agree with that, Ryan. I mean, it is pretty significant, but I need to put this into context. China is where most of the Bitcoin mining is based right now, and it is also influential in the Bitcoin community as China is influential pretty much everywhere else in the rest of the economy. They're a big part of the traditional economy. So it's no surprise that they have so much of influence in the new emerging economy of digital currencies. But I need to put into context that China, uh, Chinese regulators haven't clamped down on it as hard as some people had expected. So it, the story has been blown out of proportion to a certain degree. Uh, they are saying that uh, they're being cautious right now is my reading of what they've recently said. And most of the Bitcoin community agrees as well. Because if China wanted to ban it outright, they would have just said it. They would have done it by now. They haven't. They know there's miners in the uh, in the country. They're working on their own digital currency. So they're kind of in between right now is what I would say China is doing. Uh, it's not completely against uh, digital assets. Adam, yeah, this, I think too, this is like, this is not the first time China has banned Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at yes. the headlines, this headline has shown up probably seven or eight times over the last uh, six years now. Um, China's in a beautiful cycle of 
banning Bitcoin. Uh, I suspect the Chinese government is then buying Bitcoin and then nothing happens for six months. Bitcoin gets a little bit more expensive. China bans it again. They buy some more. Uh, price goes up. Uh, you know, China, China bans it again. <laughs> they buy some more. <laughs> the price goes up. I think this is just a Chinese government uh, stacking and hodling as much as possible. Um, I think what happened this week is, you know, that news obviously going to impact markets. There's a bunch of, of fresh eyes in the market and seeing that China's banned Bitcoin is is quite a quite an, you know, an interesting thing to hear. Um, but then that coupled with Elon's tweets, coupled with a massive custodial platform, um, effectively paying out a bunch of users where they shouldn't have in BlockFi, um, I think those three things combined kind of put some downward pressure on the market. And, um, but most notably like the year over year, uh, chart of Bitcoin is, is incredible. Like if you bought Bitcoin a year ago, um, you are, you're not even looking at the price because you don't care at this point. And, and, and it's, um, I think that should be highlighted as well. Yeah. But so go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Jump in over there and just add a point to Adam, because that's true. If you look at the Bitcoin chart over time, the lows are higher than the previous lows. So every, every year, there's a new batch of people who come in and hold and they just hold on to it forever. So there's a new batch of people who become permanent capital in the market, which puts a flow on how low Bitcoin can go, which is why we've never seen it go back to $10, for instance, or $100, which it used to be back in 2012, 2011. Every year it keeps moving higher. I told I told Adam uh, and I tell Adam often like it, it, it will be terrible for his business, but it will be great for me. I'm crossing my fingers that Bitcoin gets back down to 10 bucks so I can have a second chance <laughs> at it and load up on it. Uh, but seriously, the I mean, there, there's it's not just the conversation about China banning Bitcoin. I mean, you know, it, if, if you spend enough time online and if you read enough forums or if you get into enough discussion groups, you're going to have people saying, oh, the, I mean, the U.S. Treasury, like you really think the American president, whoever it is, is going to allow this to continue. Governments are going to start cracking down. And Adam, I know what you're going to say. I know you're going to say that's the whole point of Bitcoin is that they can't. But I would imagine <laughs> that in some way, shape or form, governments will find a way. Number one, they want to tax it, whether it's capital gains or whatever else. They got to find a way to tax it and get their get their grubby paws all over it. Right. They want to share in that profit and that that economic activity. But I would imagine that there are other reasons as well, Adam, first, how much how much of a threat do you actually think that that is? I mean, and, and how do you as an entrepreneur involved in Bitcoin, you know, how, how do you forecast against that? I would imagine it's obviously on your radar. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, we have a free, uh, a beautiful free market here, mostly, you know, in North America. And I'm, I'm not too, too concerned about the North American governments kind of looking at that and, and you know, banning Bitcoin per se. I think, um, like you noted, you know, I, I understand the technology and, and, you know, banning Bitcoin would be the equivalent of like banning the internet, which is not, not to use the word impossible, but like for the sake of argument, impossible. Um, and then if, if a government were to ban Bitcoin, you'd have to think that around the world, there would be a government that would understand the value in bringing in uh, all of that money into their ecosystem. And I think that it would create almost like competition amongst governments. And if the Canadian government banned Bitcoin, but the US government didn't, well, you can imagine where the Bitcoiners would go. And if the North American government's banned Bitcoin, but the European governments didn't, you can imagine what kind of, uh, you know, emigration and then immigration would happen over into, into Europe. And so I would say that, um, you know, as far as the free market goes, I think that Bitcoin incentivizes the governments to really think twice about how hard they crack down and, and how they crack down. And to your point about taxing it, um, you know, it is tax right now. It's taxed as capital gains. And my accountant at the end of the year always asks me, uh, hey, did you sell any Bitcoin? My answer is always, 
why the heck would I sell any Bitcoin? Um, and, and then, and then we go from there. Um, and, and so, so I think that, you know, it's taxes capital gains right now in the same way it is if, if you buy a carton of uh, menthol cigarettes and sell them to granny, uh, you know, you got to pay capital gains on that too. And, and, and so, um, you know, probably shouldn't do those correlations because if one's a black market, one's not. But uh, if you, if, if you're buying and selling gold, if you're buying and selling cars, if you're buying and selling, you know, <laughs> two by fours right now, uh, you have to, you have to claim capital gains on those things. And so Bitcoin is taxed in that way. Um, it will, in my opinion, be very foolish to tax it like an, like a, a land asset right now. When you hear about Bitcoin being a, a non-taxable asset, what they're talking about is like we pay property taxes on our assets that we live in. Uh, Bitcoin will, I don't think, I think it'd be very foolish for a government to tax Bitcoin the way that we tax property and land. Vishesh, where do you see that going? I agree with that. And actually, I wanted to add two more perspectives to this. So since Adam mentioned this, because I've got a perspective of Canada, which is where I live and India, where I used to live. If you think about Canada's economy, we've been able to take this as an arbitrage opportunity. The U.S. has been taxing it. They haven't really put clear rules on cryptocurrency. China hasn't made its mind up. But in Canada, we have ETFs. They're listed on the stock market. You can literally put it in your TFSA. We've been very open to cryptocurrency over here in Canada. And I can see other countries such as Estonia or uh, Singapore, for example, jumping in over here and taking advantage of the fact that the big countries haven't made their minds up. In terms of India, that's going to be the dark horse in this race. If India puts his hat into the ring and says we support cryptocurrency, which they haven't done yet, but they could do it. And that would change the game completely because that's an emerging superpower. Uh, China might, may or may not, like Adam mentioned, they banned it many times in the past. At some point, they'll just maybe give up and put their hat into the ring. Maybe they're doing it right now. But that's that's where I see this going. It's a geopolitical concern and some countries are going to take advantage. Hmm. This is Alex is in our live chat says, yeah, to what Adam said, I wondered about that with China, you know, tanking the price so then they could get in on it. Um, to bring it back to Elon and then I'll move on. I, I, this is just interesting. I mean, you, you take a look. I think this is from Vox, right, Sarah, at some of the trends. So so here's a couple of tweets. These are just a couple of examples of, of, of what Elon Musk has put out there. And if you follow the story, you know that it's more than just this. But, you know, he talks about Tesla and Bitcoin, Tesla suspending vehicle purchases using Bitcoin. Can, you know, they're concerned about rapidly increasing use of fossil fuels to mine Bitcoin, which is where we'll go with these two in just a second to wrap up our conversation. And then another one here, you know. Cyber Viking talking about Doge. How much is that Doge in the window? Take, take a look at this. This is, is from Vox. That's the source. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see it. If, if you're listening to the podcast, I'll just go ahead and do my best to, de- to describe it for you. But th- this is how Elon Musk's tweets have moved the price of Bitcoin. You can even see between. I mean, this is just a sample size of basically one week. Right. And, it, and it's and it's up around, you know, what is it there around the around that 60 grand mark, just over 58 grand, uh, you know, talking about he tweets that Tesla is no longer accepting Bitcoin in, in one afternoon. Adam, as if I need to tell this to you, Vishesh, as if you didn't notice, boom, you know, it's down. Was it down about 10 grand in one afternoon that he and then he tweets that, you know, Tesla's not sold its Bitcoin, suggests that Tesla's selling it. You know, it, it goes up, it goes down. Pretty wild to watch the influence now. Maybe Adam might say, you know, it, maybe maybe some of this is anecdotal. Maybe some of the other thing, you know, we, we mentioned the Chinese announcement. There, there are other factors at play, but it's an interesting one to take a look at. A big part of that being the conversation around the ecological impact of mining Bitcoin. And, and this is maybe where we'll return to, to a quick primer so our audience can understand it if they don't already. Adam, you and I have spoken about this in past, but I got a great email from Luisa. 
And Louisa wrote into talk at RyanJesperson.com and she says, everybody's talking, she says, everybody's talking about the energy cost of Bitcoin mining, but I haven't heard anybody talk about the human side of it. She says, so let me make a few points. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of them. So I'm just going to throw to the two of you. You can do it. She says, so, so, so people, either individuals or groups, purchase computer equipment, specialized equipment intended for Bitcoin mining, which of course costs money. You know, they take electricity to run, more electricity to cool them down, costing money. There's a lot of people paying a lot of money to mine Bitcoin. The mining process involves computers performing tasks over and over. She says, I don't understand the details, but it strikes me that there's a small random chance a computer will be successful. When this happens, the people who who run the computers are rewarded with Bitcoin. Some miners will earn Bitcoin and be rewarded good ROI, but many of them it seems to me may never earn any bitcoins, meaning they've wasted their time and money. Zero ROI. So she says, Louisa says, here's my question. Is Bitcoin mining basically a lottery? And for Bitcoin miners who never earn any Bitcoin, are they essentially unpaid labor? And if I make money on Bitcoin, am I profiting from the exploited labor of Bitcoin miners. I love how conscious she is about this. I love that she wanted to put the two of you in a position to help make sense of it. Vishesh, why don't you go first? Absolutely. And uh, it's a fair point, but I would say that uh, this is a business. If you think about mining as a business, it has a certain degree of risk. Uh, the companies that are coming in right now, some of them are publicly listed, well-funded companies. They're not just putting money in. They're not going to lose money on this because they've done the calculation about how much they're going to generate, whether it's going to be profitable for them. Over the past two years, it has been genuinely profitable for them uh, to be mining Bitcoin. So they're doing those calculations on the back end. It's not free labor. No one's going to do that. And if they did that, they'd be out of business. Essentially, the money that they put in would drive them out of business. You wouldn't have to worry about anyone doing free labor. It's the same as someone opening up a coffee shop, for instance. There's a chance they might fail, but if they win, they get rewarded for it. It's just like any other business uh, mining. In terms of the energy cost, if you want to talk about that, the miners who are coming on now, since I'm speaking about new miners coming on, they're moving to renewables because renewables are cheaper. This plays into the cost aspect as well. They're based in Canada, Iceland, Sweden. They're trying to move it away from China. 40% of Bitcoin mining is renewable energy which if you think about it is higher than the United States, United States gets 12% of its energy from renewable. This is 40% for the Bitcoin ecosystem. In Canada, majority of energy comes from renewable. It comes from hydroelectricity. And if you if you are a mining company in Canada, you're cleaner than the rest of the world. That's And cheaper because it's uh, getting cheaper than traditional fuels. Adam, what would you say to Louisa? Yeah, um, I think you were awfully generous there in calling that a fair point. That is just not a fair point at all. That's a that's a ridiculous thing to to ask. Um, Why? Because the miners are computers; they're not people. Well, no, but <laughs> so the computers no aren't one, free. Correct, but but you know, to what Vizesh said, I think that when you embark on trying to make money and you do that by way of investment, you should expect, and like you said, uh, do the calculations to ensure that you get a return on that investment. If I dumped a million dollars into a gold mining operation uh, and decided to dig up Mount Everest because I assumed there was a ton of gold there and I paid the government and all things went to plan and logistically it was made possible and I found no gold to be in Mount Everest, that would just be because I was stupid, uh, not because I was exploited. And anyone that bought gold or profited off of gold that I didn't find would not be harmed. Uh, it would just be be me and my, and my own 
you know, lack of ability to look at where the market was um, in doing that. But you the can't that guarantee to works, find Bitcoin. Can't You can't guarantee that mining Bitcoin is going to produce, can you? Uh, you can do it with a reasonable algorithm, I think. I think that like I, I've been running Bitcoin miners on and off uh, since 2013. Um, all of my miners have found some Bitcoin. And if you want to be incredibly risk averse, you can you can sign up for a mining pool. And what the mining pool does is it, it points your miner towards a group of miners uh, and, and the pool pays you based on the amount of power you contribute to the pool, regardless of whether or not your miner actually finds Bitcoin. What it says is we as a collective, we as a pool have X hash rate um, attacking the algorithm. Uh, we are paying X dollars per hash rate. So if you contribute a very, very small amount or a large amount of hash rate, we're going to pay you based on the work you do, based on the work your miner does, not based on um, how many Bitcoin you find. So I think that, um, you know, I, I, I love the consciousness behind, you know, exploitation. And obviously we don't want to exploit anyone. Um, but that's just that's just wrong. <laughs> and then following up on 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 the 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 energy side, um, recent studies actually have shown that seventy percent of Bitcoin mining worldwide are coming from renewable energies. Um, but further to that, Bitcoin is probably one of the only industries that incentivizes the technology of renewables because it has direct profit correlated to that. Uh, the the fossil fuels industry is going to suffer from the advent of renewable energies and from the progression of renewable energies. Um, I think that Bitcoin mining as a comparison to that is going to benefit quite significantly from the, from the uh, advent and, and advancement in technology to, to renewable energies. Um, second to that, you know, Bitcoin mining is, is a consumer. I don't hear anyone uh, upset at you and I for I'm plugged into like, I got some lights going. I got cameras. I got a computer. I got this microphone. It's all plugged into the wall. Um, I have no idea where the power comes from in the wall. I pay a couple thousand bucks a month for my power at the office and away we go. Um, you know, Bitcoin miners do the same thing. And so I would also put the onus on the power providers. Uh, are they, you know, providing clean energy or are they providing, um, you know, fossil fuel energy? And I'm not sure why all the onus has suddenly gone onto Bitcoin to make that change when they just plug machines into a wall uh, where the power comes from the wall is not really up to them. I want to jump in over that. And because I completely agree with this, if I just get like a second, I could just add to this. A you can bit. have as much time uh, as you'd like. Thanks for that. Cause this, this is really a point that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And if you think about the community that hasn't invested in Bitcoin, yes, they see it as a waste. They don't see the point of people creating this digital currency and what's the point of using so much of electricity for something that's completely unnecessary from their perspective. That's not true because Bitcoin is being used in some countries where the economies are falling apart. They're using it in Venezuela. They're using it in Nigeria. They're using it in Palestine, from what I can say. It does give people sovereignty uh, where their own economy is falling apart. It gives them an option out of their local economy. So it is useful. And this usefulness is going to be more apparent as the industry develops. Secondly, for the energy use, Adam made a great point about being plugged in and using uh, a lot of energy as consumers generally. No one ever talks about how much YouTube is using in the sense of how that electricity would be uh, compared to a nation. If you thought about the servers that are powering YouTube or something as frivolous as TikTok, for example, which I would say is frivolous, but then again, people using it would say it isn't. Again, Bitcoin isn't completely frivolous because it is helping people in economies that are falling apart. 
and 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 my 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 thought on this as as a lay person is that the significance or the integration or the point of crypto will become more and more and more apparent over time and and if like in some other circumstances, it evaporates into nothing, then so be it. But I know a lot of people, including the two of you, don't feel that that's the way it's going to go. Let me ask you this in closing, because we have a roundtable ready to rock and roll. They're all hanging out in the bullpen right now. Adam, tomorrow, May 22nd, it's it's a big anniversary. It'll be, uh, if my math is correct, the 11-year anniversary of the first Bitcoin transaction. Will you be ordering a pizza to commemorate the day? And if so, how will you be paying for the pizza? Tell us the story. Yeah, absolutely. This has got to be one of the best stories of Bitcoin. So May 22, 2010, a, uh, a gentleman in the UK purchased two pizzas from a Papa John's in New York uh, for 10,000 Bitcoin. Uh, by today's math, a half a billion dollar pair of pizzas. Um, and uh, and so, yes, we we love to celebrate Bitcoin Pizza Day um, uh, here in town. We're uh, we're going to be doing um, some some. Uh, 21 pizza giveaways uh, to celebrate a bit of a new office opening in uh, in Calgary. And so uh, stay tuned on our Twitter for that. But it's funny too, like we all have these stories. Um, like me, myself, I have I have a 30 Bitcoin shoe collection that I foolishly uh, collected, uh, you know, a few years ago. And, and, and we, you know, if, when, when you're in Bitcoin, we're not used to this deflationary asset that just continually increases. We've all got a fiat mindset that our money becomes less and less value over time, less and less valuable over time. And so we're incentivized to spend it as much and as fast as possible. Uh, you know, no one is trading their, uh, their U.S. dollars in for pesos. Um, people are rushing from pesos so to US dollars. And I think that uh, in that same way, our mindset in these westernized cultures with solid currency systems are going to change from that fiat mindset into that Bitcoin mindset, which is, do I actually want to spend these coins on, on this pizza or on those shoes or that office furniture? Or am I more inclined to hold this Bitcoin and just do with what I have? Vishesh, do you have one you'd like to take back? A transaction you'd like to take back? Uh, a transaction? Uh, no, no. I won't even accumulating ever since I've caught on to this. Smart man. <laughs> way too late, to be honest. I first found it in 2013. I should have bought at that time, but I barely ever sell. I did sell about 30% of it earlier this year when the market was at, you know, too frothy. But then again, I accumulate uh, in general. I don't spend it on consumer goods. Uh, Vishesh uh, Rising Honey is the founder of Sharp Ascension. It's a financial content marketing agency out of Toronto. Uh, investments research focused on f- uh, financial tech. Do you just call it fintech? If I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. F- fintech. fintech. That's the, fintech. That's the one. That yeah, I'll, it, it'll, just, it'll, it'll roll off the tongue next time. You're like an industry <laughs> expert now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, except don't listen to me. Bitcoin, AI, EVs, green energy. I mean, your, 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 your wheelhouse is all the stuff that intrigues us. And of course, you know, Adam O'Brien, uh, a friend of the show, the founding CEO of Bitcoin. Well, you can find him online under our sponsors tab. Thanks to the both of you. And ha- have a happy May long weekend. Thanks so much, Ryan. Take care. Great to meet you, Zesh. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Adam. Have a great weekend. Appreciate Take it. Take care, fellas. We'll get to our roundtable in just a second. W- wanted to remind you very quickly, the team at Kubi Energy right now, another partner of ours, they present positive reflections on our first show of every week. So next week, that's going to be Tuesday. Our team is observing the long weekend. We're going to spend some time outdoors getting some fresh air and you know i mean sarah hoyles is probably gonna be out, out there like weeding and putting in all the all, all the effort and i'm gonna be lazing around doing absolutely nothing like a deadbeat 
It's the plan anyway. No comment. <laughs> Kubi Energy will present Positive Reflections Tuesday morning. We've already got one submission that had tears. They didn't quite fall out of my eyes yesterday, but they were hovering. You know those ones where you're, especially around the bottom eyelid, they just start to fill and fill and fill, and it's just this beautiful video. It's like sad and beautiful, but it fits in positive reflections because of the sentiments attached to it. That's all I'm going to say. You're not going to want to miss it. We want to hear the stories, see the photos, view the videos that have that have enriched your life, that have made your day, so to speak. Kubi Energy, of course, operating in Western Canada with office is out of Edmonton and Kamloops doing solar installations, helping people achieve their green energy goals, commercial, residential, uh, and of course, uh, industrial. They've done some huge projects as well online at kubienergy.ca. The team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, I mentioned it earlier. I mean, speaking of green, speaking of sustainability, if you check out my Instagram story right now, it'll be up for another few hours. I posted it yesterday. That new Jeep Wrangler 4xe. This is the EV, the electric version of the Jeep Wrangler, like the big, awesome, you know, the we, the classic boxy Wrangler. I had a chance to drive it around a little bit. The thing is like silent. I've never driven anything like it. They've got one, at least one right now at St. Albert Dodge. You can go check it out. Sherwood Dodge as well. And the team at Friesen Brothers. Sam, can we call up this tweet? I absolutely loved this one from an audience member. We always want to see your photos, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, tag us. And our partners, too. This this from Shadow Welch, who said, Jespo, last night I went to the new Friesen Brothers location, South Edmonton. He says, I love the store. I had to take some pictures of the produce. He says, I wanted to get some uh, photos of their fried chicken, but I'll do that some other time. Look at that. Absolutely beautiful. Friesen Brothers has been supporting Alberta producers for more than 65 years. Alberta grown, Alberta owned in 15 locations across the province. Well, every Friday around this time, we bring you our Friday Real Talk Roundtable. And, and I'm excited about this one today. It's it's kind of a homegrown idea based on conversations we were having as a team about barriers or if I can say hurdles to getting involved in sport. And we've lined up a panel that, that, that I think is going to take this in many interesting directions. Rosie Kolba is the founder of Tiger's skate club Kwame Damon Mason is a filmmaker uh, the man behind soul on ice he's a podcaster as well he's done amazing work with the National Hockey League and we're going to learn more about that and Nick Holt is a professor in the faculty of kinesiology sport and recreation at the University of Alberta a warm welcome to the three of you thank you so much for being here uh, Kwame why don't we start with you uh, talk about diversity in sport or barriers in sport I mean this conversation has been growing and in large part because of the work you've been doing. You've been driving these conversations in the hockey community. How did you get involved in this? Um, I, I think for me, it was really just started out as a passion for the growth of the game of hockey. You know, when I was living in Alberta, I was kind of finishing up my radio career. I felt like radio just didn't have a place for me. And and that was one of the actually first places where I just felt there was a lack of diversity and there was nothing I could do about that. And so I, you know, transitioned out and, um, you know, thought about, you know, my next steps. 
and I always wanted to do film and and hockey was a big passion of mine. I was really getting into a lot more of the documentary phase because around the uh, like around 2010 ish, you know, documentaries were really popping off. And so I wanted to combine the two things that I had a love for, which was documentary filmmaking and hockey. And um, I, I, the one thing I noticed about the game of hockey was that there was more minority kids starting to play pivotal roles in the National Hockey League. And I wanted to make sure that the history was told in the right context. So I just embarked on, you know, making a film that it was dedicated to the history and contributions of black athletes in the game of hockey. Had you always had you grown up like were you a huge hockey fan from the from the time that you were a kid? Was this always one of the sports that really captured your attention, your enthusiasm? Yeah, I'm Canadian. So, you know, uh, my earliest memories was having a hockey stick in, in my hand and playing road hockey with my friends here in Toronto as a kid and playing in the um MTHL, which is now the GTHL, um, the hockey organization in Toronto. So hockey's always been a passion uh, um, and, 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 you know, I had a love for it, but, you know, it, it just did have its barriers back then in the sense that it wasn't marketed towards people that looked like me. So you kind of kept it as a guilty pleasure. You had to listen to all the stereotypes and all the the naysayers about it from both sides. You know, my black friends would call it the white boy sport and my white friends would say, you know, black people don't like hockey because it's too cold. So you just sit there in the middle and, you know, just kind of keep it silent to yourself. But, you know, when you get older and you're more confident in your own skin, you're able to now um, be a lot more forceful in the things that you love and more intentional. And, you know, especially in the day, in the day and age we are in now and what I learned on my journey making the film, you know, I just thought, how stupid have we been as a society, as a Canadian nation that prides itself on the fact that we call hockey our national sport, but yet still we do not celebrate the history and contributions of the minorities that help form the game that we see today. Uh, a little later on in this roundtable, I, w- I want to get into some of the stories that you've heard, some of the stories that you've told, uh, some of the, the epiphanies that you've had. Uh, Rosie, you're, you you sure. uh, we we learned a little bit about Tiger Skate Club from one of your members who who happens to be the producer of this program. Uh, <laughs> there she is, Sarah Hoyles. <laughs> and so she brought us up to speed a little bit. But some people are just going to be joining the conversation now or just be hearing this this roundtable on the podcast. So so bring us up to speed. This is a skate club that specifically reaches out, if I understand correctly, to to either a women or a, or a gender diverse, um, you know, sample of, of, of people that are really interested in getting involved in the sport, but may not have had an open door. Have, have I summed it up accurately? Absolutely. So we are an Edmonton based skate club that uh, caught fosters towards women and girls in skateboarding, as well as non-binary trans folks and gender fluid um, folks as well. And we have meetups at Edmonton skate parks all around Edmonton. And we uh, just have like a inclusive environment where lots of people are welcome. Some of our members are as young as four years old. And then we go up all the way up to uh, women in their forties. And we find that there was not a lot of um, representation for women in skateboarding in Edmonton. 
I myself found that when I was going to skate parks and trying to learn tricks and things like that, it was often a very intimidating environment for women and girls. And um, when you get to that skate park, it's male dominated. And uh, sometimes men are coming up to you and, and offering unsolicited advice or asking you to prove yourself via like, can you do a kickflip right now? <laughs> so it's a very intimidating environment. So we wanted to provide that inclusive environment for women to uh, to feel like they had somewhere to go and they could be part of a team and uh, feel like we could take over the skate park and really um, do something with that. Well, I can't wait to hear about some of the some of the stories that that you've witnessed. I would imagine you've seen a few people blossom, skill wise, interest wise, and otherwise. Uh, Doctor Holt, your research. Uh, or at least a large part of your research has been about this, about barriers in sport, in particular participation um, when it comes to children from low income families. How did this get on your radar? And can you take us into your area of study? Yeah, you, I can actually take it back to my dad. I grew, I grew up in Wales and, um, you know, we could have, we could afford to play sport and it was a lot cheaper then. But uh, and I didn't realize at the time that my dad, he wasn't a coach. He wasn't a player. But he got involved with a couple of local um, sport clubs and uh, actually started a cricket league, cricket being a popular sport in Britain. And um, what I didn't know at the time was there were lots of kids who couldn't afford it. And the way that he set it up, um, he did it in ways that it could be affordable and the fees wouldn't be a barrier. And so as a kid playing, I, I didn't really know. I didn't know about this. I just thought it was the, the way it was and everyone got a chance to play and then, of course, as I got older, and particularly when I moved to Canada, um, I realized that the costs were higher for a start. And I actually came to Canada for, for graduate school, and I, I couldn't afford to play. And I had a really good network, and I was really well connected and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I realized that, you know, there'd be thousands of children, say, in Edmonton who'd be uh, in a situation where they're excluded from sport for lots of different reasons. So one of the things that I can do, one of the small things I can do is uh, do some research on on the topic and look at it from that perspective. Um, so that's really how I got started. And that, that's uh, why I'm interested in, in this topic. It would be such an unfair question for me to ask you. So what have you found? Because I imagine that we could speak for hours about what you've found. But when it comes to barriers in sport, in particular, economic barriers in sport, how are we doing as a society on a identifying the barriers and b working to remove them? There's some great organizations, things like free play for kids, uh, kids sport. They do incredible work. Um, but they can only have so much influence. I'll also say lots of sport clubs do have um, systems in place where they might waive costs or reduce costs or do payment plans, but they often don't advertise these things because they could get very expensive for clubs that have little revenue. But in terms of the barriers, financial cost is the obvious one, and financial costs increase the more you go into sport. So the higher level you get, the more the costs increase, so the more it becomes exclusionary. So you've got registration fees, you've got more hidden costs. Um, equipment is more more obvious, but transportation, getting there, we find things like parents might work two jobs and one of those jobs might be in the evening. So actual transportation co costs, the financial costs, but also the labor costs. You've got all these hidden types of costs as well. And um, 
Then I think socially and just knowing where to go. So if you think about someone who's first coming to Canada, now I'll use my own experience. I, I spoke the language. I had good connections to the university. I had loads of support. Uh, I have no idea uh, how to get connected with uh, organizations. And I was an adult. So imagine if you're coming to Canada, you're quite new. Maybe you don't, uh, English uh, is not strong. You don't understand uh, what organizations are available. You don't know what support might be out there. It's an incredibly challenging proposition to even get involved. And then you're reliant on something being in your local community as well, which isn't always the case. Uh, you might have to travel. It might not be bus route that goes there when it's minus 30 in the middle of winter. So, I mean, lots of the barriers are quite predictable, but there's some of these kind of hidden things that act as barriers that go beyond the financial cost. That's a great point. Um, Kwame, we've got uh, a filmmaker out of Alberta by the name of Mariah Braun that's walking, watching right now. She goes, oh my gosh. She says, Kwame's a fellow Guyanese. Do you say Guyanese? Is that how you pronounce it? You're, you're from Guyana, is that Guyanese. right? She, yeah, she yeah, says, yeah, she, she says I, it's all caps, exclamation marks everywhere. She says, I love Soul on Ice. She says, that's such a good film. Right. She's, she's a filmmaker, so there you go. Um, you had a chance. Yeah, I mean, good, you, good. you've interviewed pros like, I mean, uh, watched him play last night. Wayne Simmons, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Joel Ward, Trevor Daly. You've talked to Tony McCagney, of, 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 you know, five-time Stanley Cup champion, Grant Fuhrer. Um, what did you hear, like, story-wise, anecdotally, about some of the barriers that, that these black athletes, specifically hockey players, faced? And maybe not just as, as young kids getting involved in the sport, but I would imagine all the way up to the pros, right? Yeah, um, I, I think for the most part, a lot of their stories were, you know, very much the same, you know, um, hearing it in the stands, hearing it from other opposing um, players, usually from teammates, you have a more cohesive or a a more brother brotherly love type of atmosphere for, for them. But you know, for some of these guys, it was the added pressure of being on the ice. So, for example, if you talk to a guy like Mike Marzen, who was the second black athlete to play in the National Hockey League, and he was drafted to uh, the Washington Capitals in 1974, um, he, he broke it down to me like this. He, he said, you know, as a professional athlete in the game of hockey, you're highly focused, especially before – the game starts and you know the mental preparation is 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 something that a lot of us take for granted that they have to they have to have and they have to do and he said to me you know imagine have to not only be mentally prepared for the game but also having to be mentally prepared to watch your back and you know um, equipment manager may come in and say yeah the philadelphia flyers are you know picking, you know, straws to see who's going to fight the black guy tonight or having the FBI come to you before a game and say, you know, Mr. Marsden, you know, we've had some death threats. So, you know, we'll be in the stands just to make sure that you're safe. Like all those type of pressures that your teammates can't really, you know, uh, understand or relate to, you know. Uh, I remember Mike told me a story where, you know, after FBI came to him and told him that there's death threats and, you know, somebody might have a gun in the stands that his teammates were like, well, I'm not, you know, don't sit too close to me behind beside the, on the bench. And I mean, that's not, that's not really funny, you know? Um, and, and to think about 
having to go through these extra pressures were some of the, the things that these guys had to deal with. And plus, um, you know, not having a support system, especially back then, was huge. You know, we talk about mental health so much now, but, you know, the 70s, 80s, even the early 90s, mental health wasn't a thing to talk about. So as a black athlete, that when you're the only person on the team and you're maybe getting verbally abused or, you know, um, physically challenged just because of the color of your skin on a nightly basis, that takes a toll on you. And when you have nobody to talk to uh, about this after your game or, you know, it just weighs on them. And, you know, a lot of these guys kept a lot of the things that happened to them internally so that they weren't labeled as troublemakers or a disturbance on their team. So I always say, and, you know, maybe some people will challenge, but I think that a lot of black athletes who played in the past, some of them um, suffer from some trauma um, just for playing the game of hockey that they love. Do you think that hockey culture is changing or or has changed? I mean, let's be honest. There there are still stories. I mean, I, I can think of, I, I think off the top of my head, I should research, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Wayne Simmons, as a matter of fact, just it wasn't it like a couple of years ago that somebody threw a banana peel at him on the ice? Wasn't that Wayne Simmons? It was It was one of the black NHLers. I mean, have, have you noticed that culture is changing or or is this still a very real issue? Yeah, that happened to Wayne Simmons in London, Ontario during an exhibition match. It also happened to um, Kevin Weeks in a playoff game. Um, you know, I, I, I th- this is something that, in my opinion, is never really going to just fully be gone. It's like bigotry and racism. You know, whenever I hear statements like end racism or end bigotry, I try to look at people and say, just be honest with what you're saying. Like, you're not going to eliminate ignorance from human beings. What you will do is, you know, make it to a point where it's at a very low level or those people that are doing these are the minority, not the majority. And so um, hockey culture has a change. It has changed. But, you know, um, as far as the situations that happen to young athletes of color, Oh man, like it's almost on a daily basis that you will hear something. I I know I was mentoring a kid that just uh, a year and a half, close to two years ago, was verbally abused by his teammates to the point that when their um, their 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 team, which was from a, a private school, played in um, in Europe for a tournament, their kid his his teammates jumped him and they beat him up. And to the point that they, when they got back, the mother had to take him out of the um, out of the team. And so these things happen. Um, and I think what what's good about right now is there are systems in place, there are people in place like myself, Trevor Daly, a lot of these players right now that are reaching out to all these kids to let them know that they're not alone. The problem was in the past is these things would happen to kids of color and they felt like they were alone. So either they um, quit the game of hockey or they just had to deal with it and deal with the mental trauma. Um, best story I ever heard was from George LaRock, who when he was eight years old, his parents wanted him to stop playing hockey because of the verbal abuse that they heard in the stands. And his words to them exactly was, if I quit, they win. So mm. um, I, I thank God for guys like George for um, persevering through adversity. And, um, you know, it, it, 
it has made a difference and you know we just fight through it every day and i'm just glad that there's a support system for these kids now rosie when we talk about the the culture of skateboarding or or maybe some barriers some gender-based barriers that that people might experience at the different levels um have you what have you noticed with the the participants in tiger skate club Uh, have you seen i mean i would imagine there's a certain solidarity Kwame kind of touched on that a little bit with regards to strength in numbers or even his efforts and or Trevor Daly's or anyone else in reaching out and in reiterating that there's a sense of community. Do you see that in action uh, having a, a tangible impact? Oh, absolutely. Um, when we go to the skate park as a big group of, of uh, skaters, it's fantastic because we are able to take over the skate park. And um, a lot of the times when you're there on your own as a woman, uh, you second guess yourself and you wonder, is it my chance for a run? There's no like real rules about how people take turns at a skate park. But one thing that um, that we like to do is just go out as a team and we're able to um, just show people that we are here and we're, we're um, you know, really representing our space and we're able to uh, do that. Um, a couple of my members have had those experiences where they go to the skate park and they're directly questioned by um, some members who are already there or some people who are there. Um, one of my co-founders, Char, she was actually trying to do a pretty difficult skill, the skill of dropping into a half pipe and she was uh, questioned by an eight-year-old boy just straight off do you think you can do this should you really be doing this and so if he was <laughs> if she was um not able to have that confidence within herself and say no i've got the skills i have the knowledge she would have been scared off of that that skill development so being there as a team and being there um to support each other has been huge for us uh, and i mean we've seen oh go ahead no what have you seen We've seen um, lots of women and girls get supported um, by their parents as well. So moms will come with their daughters and the daughters uh, kind of inspire the moms to try new skills. Yeah. And people who are absolute beginners are able to uh, just step on the board for the first time. So that's fantastic. And then also people who have given up skating, maybe their 30s or in their 40s, for some reason they were discouraged by the skating environment, the lack of inclusivity, the lack of representation presentation in the industry or in the mainstream magazines like Thrasher Magazine or other um, brand representations. But now we're able to come together as a team and um, really support each other with that. So it's nice to uh, encourage each other and and you'll see a lot of um, skaters encouraging each other and just actually helping with direct coaching skills at our meetups. And that's fantastic, too. And and uh, within the world of skateboarding, it has really improved in terms of representation with brands and uh, skateboarding labels. There's now um, an entirely uh, skateboard label for women by women uh, called Meow Skateboards and a few other initiatives as well. And Canada Skateboarding as well has published on their website a province by province listing across Canada of girls and women skateboard communities. So it's not just us. And we have been mentored by many people. Um, 100% Skate Club here in Calgary or close to us in Calgary have mentored us directly and uh, industry resets in Red Deer too. So it's a growing phenomenon, women on skateboards. And of course, with the 2021 Olympics coming up too, that's 
and a fantastic opportunity for representation. Well, when I first uh, this is this is not meant to don't don't read too much into it. Um, but but when I first heard and when Sarah was first telling me about Tiger Skate Club, I was I was picturing kind of a bunch of people that probably like to have a good time. Um, I was picturing it sort of like as a maybe maybe uh, like a drinking club that skateboards, you know, like like we have like a drinking club with a golfing problem, like the same sort of idea. I was expecting a bunch of I won't say hipsters, but, you know, like about a, a, a certain demographic. And then as soon as I checked out your Instagram account and you're seeing like young girls, you're seeing tweens and teens and adults. And I'm going this it's it's not what I expected at all. And it looks to me like the draw. I mean, you're, you've created a community almost, I guess, out of nothing that really is going to be opening up people's opportunities across age demographics, which is really remarkable. I mean, that, and I'm, I'm sure that's not lost on you. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's fantastic that we have like the four year olds coming out with their their rad dad fathers yeah. and the moms getting inspired too. And uh, yes, just to see the team building and the, the community that is building around that. And the need was there. So we saw that need and we just kind of built on that. And the, the response has been incredible. Like, currently, we are not having skate park meetups due to COVID restrictions. Right. But uh, people are just waiting on us to get started again. And we're so excited excited to get back live at the park and um but we are thinking of other initiatives to keep that going just like some video tutorials or Canada Skateboard is actually hosting a contest that our club is going to be a part of so that's going to be fantastic as well onward and upward i love it uh, professor holt this is let's let's not uh take for granted here that you know i mean generally speaking uh you know kwame's you're talking about hockey and rosie you're talking about skateboarding and we could talk about golf and we could talk about a whole bunch of different sports surfing is an interesting um example um but but when it comes to the benefit of sport or why this should be a conversation why barriers to sport uh or maybe open doors into sport should be a conversation that everybody cares about let let's not let this opportunity pass us by without getting into why sport and organized sport is so important what does your research tell you about that you're seeing it a lot on social media right now um people lamenting um what's been taken away from their kids with with covid and talking about the mental health benefits quite a lot i mean what we what we've found consistently there's studies in lots of different countries all over canada you can kind of talk about personal, social, and the physical type health or well-being uh, benefits. They're really consistent. Um, so with things like the social skills, learning new people, learning um, to work with and meet and deal with people from different social backgrounds, because often sport will provide you a new social network that's outside of your school or your immediate community. So I'll draw kids from different schools to a sport team or something like that. So you're expanding your social network. You're building those social skills. People can learn about some form of kind of self-discipline, resilience. But none of this is just automatic by just kind of chucking a ball in front of them. It's about building a sense of community. It's about adults who care in the right ways, uh, delivering sport, um, where they put the children first and um put the children's developmental experiences above like winning and things like that. And um, so tons of benefits for sure, but it doesn't happen by magic. And there's plenty of examples of people who go into sport and have terrible experiences and then 
want to find something else to do. And I love the skateboarding example because I'm sure you've got many people there who were involved in some kind of organized, I would imagine, team sport when they were younger. Something didn't work out. They go away and having opportunities to come back and doing things on their own terms with that social support network um, seems really important to me. So, yeah, in my opinion, tons of benefits. I love sport, but I know that these things don't just happen automatically. It's the caring adults who are there that make a difference. You know, most of these adults are volunteers. It's just parents or uh, other people volunteering and trying to do their best. Um, it's not necessarily always like trained professionals, um, although you're seeing more of that. But uh, the role of adults, we cannot understate the role of those supportive um, caring, mentoring adults to create the environment. And then if you create that environment, more kids will gain these positive outcomes. And if you don't, it's just left to chance. Um, I w- want to get into our live chat here a little bit. Hannah says, if anybody, uh, you know, for our local audience out of the city where we broadcast from, Hannah says, if anybody in Edmonton wants to join a diverse rugby club, she says, look up the Edmonton Rockers. They are the oldest woman only club in the city uh which is great um a lot of people are talking about their own history and, and coming up in sport you know jillian is a former figure skater i'm assuming based on her comments here she says ice cost the cost of ice in alberta is out of control she says there's no way though that it may be high or as high as it is in quebec in quebec skating and hockey clubs have had their own arenas you know you don't bid or compete for ice but there can be cost implications Obviously, a lot of other people are talking about steps that their their parents took for them or, or sacrifices their families made. Randy, Randy Thunderhorse says racism in hockey is alive and well, you know, black, indigenous and Asian players continue to experience racism today. Um, you know, Fatima makes a good point, says what happens in sport will reflect what's happening in society. And when we collectively make it unacceptable to be racist or bigoted or, or, or trans or homophobic in society, we will begin to see change in sport. I mean, Kwame, I know that we're, we're you know, you're here talking about the, the experience of, of, of your filmmaking, um, you know, soul on ice and, and your lived experience as a black man in Canada and a hockey fan. But we also see movement in hockey on other fronts. Um, you know, I, I don't know, eliminating other barriers, but at least addressing them. The pride tape initiative, I know, has been a really huge one. And for National Hockey League teams, even just in warm ups to be to be practicing or to be warming up using sticks that are taped with that rainbow tape. It sends a message. Um, and I think across sport, it's safe to say that, that generally speaking, we don't see a lot of of gay, lesbian, trans or queer athletes that are out, uh, at least not at a professional level. How would you assess the job? I mean, when you talk about governing bodies or the most powerful organizations, specifically in hockey, I would think you're looking at the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, and of course, the National Hockey League. Uh, the NHL has has rolled out some really interesting initiatives over the past number of years, including on green energy, uh, including on, on reaching out to marginalized communities. How would you assess the job that the big governing bodies are doing? Um, from the NHL's point of view, I think or I feel like they are 
you know, going in the right direction as far as having the conversations to understand what needs to be done to grow the game in the future. Uh, I'm a part of the fan inclusion committee with the National Hockey League, and there is the player uh, inclusion committee um, and the youth committee as well. And I think the, the conversations are being had and people who are, um, directly affected are in these committees and are actually having these discussions. Uh, we just did a presentation for Gary Bettman and a couple other of the owners, and that's where we have to start. Now, in, in my part of the presentation, the biggest thing that I said to them was they have to be passionate about this more so than anybody else because their passion will trickle down to their employees and from there these things will happen. There's still times where I scratch my head because there's a lot of opportunities that are missed and you know you have to just keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it but the 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 fact that you know there's a group of people out here that are not giving up is very encouraging um, in my opinion that at some point things will happen. I always tell people this is not a marathon. I mean this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. Um, uh, and I also feel that I'm going to be very old, much older than I am now, when the game of hockey looks and feels the way that I envisioned that it should, especially in our multicultural um, North America. But um, that's the work. And, you know, we're here to do this for the children. And if we have that as our focal point, then I think that's common that we all want our children to have safe spaces and to be in an inclusive environment. I grew up in a very inclusive environment, and I want that for my child and for everybody else's child, especially in the game of hockey and in any other sport. Rosie, is uh a word like I, I grew up I, I adored skateboarding growing up like I was always, I was never great at it but I absolutely loved it and and when you talk about the the young girl dropping in on a half pipe I immediately had the the like audio experience I was taken back to the sound of skateboard wheels a skateboard dropping in on a half pipe is a really special and beautiful sound do people still use the phrase Betty's <laughs> Ben's sorry could you repeat that <laughs> Betty's like B-E-T-T-Y oh, oh, important one yeah actually there's a there's a friend of mine who has the the skate the boarding betty's and she has her own little club all about that but it's more inclusive for snowboarding skateboarding and uh, other board sports like paddle boarding so yeah i haven't heard that one in a lot of um, <laughs> like 30 years lately. <laughs> it's more like i think from the 90s but yeah, yeah or, or the 80s or the 80s <laughs> you, you, yeah. you don't have to let me down gently but i just remember when i was skating and it was always like if there were girls that were skating they were they were called betties but it was never a derogatory term it was always just like but but what what was significant about it is that it would identify somebody and 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 almost like maybe not in the best way right in other words anybody yeah. showing up at a skate park if if you were a male if you were if you're a boy it's not going to be pointed out your gender is not the first thing that everybody's going to note and I just remember even as a kid this is just anecdotal I remember there'd be like oh there's a betty here or check out that betty on the quarter yeah. pipe, you know, and it was it was kind of an it, it's it's it, it was interesting. And I'm only processing it now, 30 years later of what that what must have been like for for a girl or for a woman to show up at a skate park. If she's especially if she's the only one and to immediately have that attention on her uh, when yeah. we, when we talk about like I asked Kwame, about how, how's double IHF or how's the NHL doing on this? I would imagine in skateboarding, 
sure there's the Olympics and yeah, there's like the X Games, but it, but it's also an individual sport. It's 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 a hobby for a lot of people. So I would imagine that the pop culture and the marketing side of it is maybe the equivalent of what the NHL might be in the context of a hockey discussion. Do you see equality there? Do you see sponsorship equality? Are are female um, or gender fluid, um, you know, professional skaters? Are, are they making as much money as the men? I mean, how would you evaluate it at the highest levels? Interesting. Yeah, I would say that it's it's an interesting changing dynamic right now. Like there is representation in the the mainstream magazines such as Thrasher, and we've got um, some out trans skaters such as Leo Baker, and she has created her own um, her sorry his own board company Glue Skateboards, and then there's some other um, companies as well such as Skate Like a Girl, which is an organization to really improve that inclusivity and do coaching and they have their own YouTube channel where um, girls can go and gather that uh, that information that they need, like how to set up a skateboard, how to push around on a skateboard for the very first time. So all the like the nitty gritty stuff, like how to enter a skate shop and ask for the right equipment. So how do you do all of that? And um, yeah, I would say that those those brands that are coming out, this more and more common nowadays, like they've got the Meow skateboards and uh, definitely we've got way more uh, women representation. Now there's the, the Olympics, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, every issue of Brasher, there's at least one woman represented, I would say for sure. And a little bit of inclusivity there. So it's starting to change. Yeah. And it's a changing environment, but uh, we definitely have a long ways to go. Hmm. Uh, Professor Holt, I'm, I'm a great comment here from Kim. Who's, who's uh, watching in live. She's watching on YouTube and everybody's talking about, you know, cost is, as you know, a, a huge barrier for a lot of families and, and access is a big barrier to a lot of families as, as well. And, and and she makes a good point around access and and sort of the position that, that their family has taken and, and and talking about opportunities. And I've noticed some comments around how different clubs are built. Um, now, there, there's we have to be honest. I mean, I, I think of of different sports and there's kind of the club idea or even the specialized schools that families that are either able to afford or families that, that really sacrifice to be able to afford. Um, and I don't take that those efforts for granted either. You know, these kids are on almost, I mean, ideally in their parents' eyes, hopefully, right? Like a straight shot to a college scholarship or they're they're working to give them the best access or the best shot to a, to a professional career or to, or to reach the ultimate goal. And then you have the more, um, I don't know what you'd call them, but they're not rep leagues or rep teams. They're more like community teams, right? Where, where kids of varying skill levels may have more of an opportunity to participate. Do we see that in, in addressing whether it's fiscal barriers, access barriers or otherwise? Do you see a movement? Have you have you noticed a movement where there's more of an awareness there of building teams less based on who's going to win the league championship and a little bit more cognizant of opening the door and making sports accessible to people. Is that a thing? Is that a trend? Trend? Mm. Not yet. Mm. I think you've got individuals who are aware of those types of things and trying to make those types of changes. But structurally, um, those uh, more intensive types of programs you've just described, um, someone's got to pay for them because now you're dealing with professional coaches people it's the job so someone's got to pay for that so i think those elite streams it's on <laughs> we haven't really seen 
I'm sure there's sports that are good examples, and I'm sure there's isolated examples of clubs that are doing a great job. But overall, structurally, no, as you go further in sport, it's going to cost more. If you go into these elite rep type things with travel and tournaments and showcases, uh, it, it's going to cost more strength and conditioning programs, those kind of university preparation type things that you see. Um, but I tell you one thing I have seen. If you're really, really good, that's when pathways might open up. If you're the best player who might help the team win, if you're the person who might go on to be a professional, um, yes, people might make exceptions there. Um, but that's certainly not the system that we've got right now. And you can pick it's not always better in other countries, but some of the things that you see in some of the Scandinavian countries, you get more direct subsidy of sport programs. You get these multi-sport types of clubs located in communities. They become a hub of a community. Um, it's not free in these Scandinavian countries. There's still um, payments involved, but a, a club as a heart, a multi-sport club at the heart of thriving community. Um, can be a great place to provide opportunities and access to tons of kids. And then those really talented kids will, will find a pathway uh, one way or another. And it's not just one pathway, and they vary across different sports. But if you go back to what you're saying, if there's a more awareness, yeah, I'm sure there's more awareness from individuals. The system, no. You know, I look at something like um, – Jumpstart's doing some funding right now, and they're tying it to diversity-type goals and like equity, diversity, inclusion-type goals. If you started tying funding to specific uh, initiatives that include opening up access, then I think you'd see change. Kwame, I know I, you got to go right now. We got to respect your time, but but it seems like something the professor said really resonated with you. So I want to give you a chance to respond before we thank you for your time. No, I, I think um, it's very interesting because I could think of Anthony and Chris Stewart, mm -hmm. um, both who had some really great careers in the National Hockey League. And that's the perfect example. These guys, they came from literally nothing and they were good enough to the point where, you know, the cost of playing was, you know, let go because, you know, they were good enough to help the team out. And I, I mean, I think that's, a, that's great. Um, you know, but you know, there's still those, there's still those kids who just want to play and maybe are not at that high level and it takes them away from the game. But um, I think there are opportunities out there and there are organizations out there that are trying to help alleviate the cost, especially in the game of hockey. Um, I, I think we have to do a better job. I think, I think what will happen for that to change is we need more competition. We need more equipment uh, companies out there that will lower the cost a little bit more. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me is, is like, you know, we're Canadian and, you know, we want to, we want to outdo every other country, especially on the national stage when it comes to the game of hockey. And we are excluding a lot of great athletes because of that, that barrier of cost, you know, and um, I think if we can eliminate that, then, you know, we are going to be able to deliver a better product. And just like the professor said, I mean, the social benefits of sport are just phenomenal. And we have to consider that more than anything else, to be honest with you, because th that social interaction that these kids get 
growing up and being a part of a sport carries on to make them better people in the world. So would you rather your kid in a sport or would you rather them at the mall or on the street? Do kids go to the mall anymore? But you know what I mean? Like, I, I think they do. <laughs> yeah, I, I see anecdotal evidence that, that even in the midst of a full-blown pandemic, kids still go to the mall. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Exactly. That's that's Kwame Damon Mason. He's the filmmaker behind Soul on Ice. Make sure you check it out. A fantastic project. Rosie Kolb is the founder of Tigers Skate Club. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook. And Dr. Nick Holt, uh, Vice Dean of the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Thank you to the three of you for this. This was great. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Really appreciate you guys. And uh, keep up the great work, you guys. Thanks, Kwame. It's great to see you again, my man. Appreciate that. You too, brother. I love this from Lisa. Lisa says, I wasn't allowed to do anything competitive growing up. So no sports for me. Uh, Lisa says, I've, I've become not just a huge sports fan, but a sports photographer. Lisa says, I experience the game through the moments I capture. It's not easy. Um, as a man, let me explain what she's talking about. Oh, please do. <laughs> I would love that. I, I actually need you to do that. Let me let me explain what Lisa's saying here. Uh what I think is so remarkable about that, I would love to pick her brain on that because a great sports photographer knows the game. You, you, you have to be the, you know, that Wayne Gretzky quote of like you pass, you know, you pass to where the puck's going. Um, like you have to. And I need to I need to start, by the way, not having my entire life perspective based on hockey metaphors. I get to try, try to branch out. I'm not going to get out of sports metaphors. I'm just going to branch out to other games. But a great sports photographer can see the body language in the point guard coming down the basketball court on the two on one. And they can tell when it goes into that, what may be a bounce pass position, but they're actually going to set up the alley oop and they'll get that shot of the, of the dunk, like the great sports photographers, whether you're shooting surfing or whether you're shooting beach volleyball or whatever, that would be fascinating to ask her as somebody. She she's become a massive sports fan, never having played it, but is now, photographing it how that evolution works and how your mind works i mean that would what a neat feature that would be you know what we should just do basically is just poach feature interviews out of our live chat every single day <laughs> so lisa you're up next week tuesday 9 30 is that, is that how we're gonna do it some great conversations uh, going on online and and, and uh, i know mean, you've been keeping an eye on it sarah but there's people sharing their very own personal experiences and, it, and it's been so great doug says my daughter's 14 um, she plays soccer there's a ton of opportunity for her. she plays on a club team plus there's community soccer for those who don't make the club teams tracy says when i was buying soccer equipment for our kids the guy in the store said it is expensive but it's cheaper than bail which is which is a great first of all great sales pitch and also true kim says bless the visionary coaches who see the whole kid as a human and inspire them they are like teachers so valuable to a child that that coach and young athlete relationship is so special can be so special i don't know why my mind goes to like this is the realist part of me as well I don't even want to get into it. I'm thinking of just some I know of the, exactly, you know where exactly you're going. what I'm talking about. USA Gymnastics, Graham James, the Western Hockey League. I, I, as a parent, I'm not like our little guy's five. So I'm not we're not like quite. But I, I would imagine as a parent, you try so hard. I'm trying to I, I try to wrap my mind around everything, everything from like 
trusting a coach with your precious child all the way just all the way through to just even sport to take it away from the horrific nature of sexual abuse and the sexual exploitation and all that even just you know someone said that eight-year-old boy that was approaching the girl about to drop into the half pipe saying you sure you should be doing this i would be that guy saying that to my son you sure you should be doing this like why it's fascinated when we watch hockey together he's fascinated when they shed the mitts and when it's time to fight and he says to me when he's brushing his teeth he wants to watch youtube videos he can we watch hockey fights and i'm like should i be showing my kid my five-year-old kid hockey fights while he's brushing his teeth probably not um well i kind of feel like i mean it's and maybe i'm this is maybe a huge leap but you know, even just the use of a smartphone or a tablet and like, when do you put those in kids' yeah. hands? And I think it's not about abstinence. It's not about like, no, no smartphone in your hand. It's about, no, how do you actually learn yeah. what this is, what this thing is and what my relationship with it will be? So whether it's fighting in hockey sure. or a smartphone um, or, you know, being on the skateboard park and is it appropriate for me to approach somebody that I don't know. No, but yeah, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't think it's ever appropriate for what that little guy did, that eight year old talking to the girl. I just mean as a parent trying mm. to protect your own child. Like, yeah. I, you know, if you watch the game, if you watch the Leafs Habs game last night, but John Tavares, everyone's thoughts are with John Tavares, right? The captain of the Maple Leafs, one of Canada's great exports to the New York Islanders for many years. And now he's back home in Toronto and he's just an excellent hockey player and a great community member. Um, and last night taking it, it was a clean hit. It was just an unfortunate situation. Corey Perry's shin pad to his, his I mean, he's just, it was bad. It was really bad, really bad. Footage, and I yeah. can't even, and, and I'm not saying you treat your kids with kid gloves and you don't let them get involved in things. I've, I've been, I've been watching the Laird Hamilton, uh, documentary over the past couple of nights, like the world's greatest all time big wave surfer. And I just think like, if you're Laird's mom or dad, are you like, should you really be? towing into these things I, just, like, I feel like i hear a helicopter right now should you is there really, a helicopter in here i <laughs> but i don't want to be a helicopter but no yeah. oh, i'm aware of the reference <laughs> trust me just want to make sure but i'm not even parenting these that parenting these days tell me back in the day i mean i you want to hear like a real wild this has nothing to do with sport we're just rambling it's friday we can do whatever we want Grew up in Calgary, our house backed onto a provincial park right in the middle of the city. It's a beautiful park called Fish Creek Park. Mm. And it's and uh, and we would disappear. There's no cell phones. There's nothing. We would disappear for hours yeah. and we would build forts and we'd be around the provincial park and we'd be learning about like all kinds of little things in the streams and the ponds and the climbing the trees. And it was so much fun. And then uh, people can Google this if they want to learn more about Charles Ng. The name probably won't mean a lot to a lot of people. Uh, but Charles Ng was was an American uh, soldier who, who came up to Canada and, and oh, he's a serial killer. And uh, and he was he was ultimately arrested uh, by a by like a mall security. I don't remember the story exactly. He was, tra- he was stealing some food out of the mall and he was arrested by a security officer who I don't think really probably knew they were dealing with at the time. And and after Charles Ng was arrested, they determined that he had been camping out in Fish Creek Park relatively close to. I mean, the, the older I get, the more dramatic the story gets. <laughs> he was basically in our backyard. I mean, he wasn't, but he was close. I mean, ish. And I always remember that as I tell the story of being like, you know, my buddies and I. You know, in, in our little skateboard club, I think we'd be riding our BMX bikes down in Fish Creek. And I was always like, how close may we have been to Charles Ng? 
And you think these days, if that story got out and parents had found out that Charles Ng had been in Fish Creek Park and you think any parents would let their kids go down to Fish Creek Park anymore and you think that there'd be that unsupervised play and I sometimes I really wrestle with and I acknowledge I'm taking the conversation away from where it's been, but I wrestle with as a parent. And maybe this is another perception of barrier in sport. I mean, we haven't talked about, uh, you know, barriers for disabled people in sport. We haven't talked about. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different barriers. I wonder if I may create barriers to my own child's involvement in sport based on my own. Do I, I don't say paranoia, but by being somewhat of a, a nervous Nelly, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's. I, I just really feel like, I mean, what the doctor talked about, um, just talking about the fact that the, the benefits are so huge for sport. And I think in life, <laughs> maybe I'm going to get too philosophical here, but there's always risk. You know, stepping out your front door, even in your house, there's there are risks. So uh, and I'm not meaning to downplay um, when there are predators in sport because uh, there are. But I feel like... Um, I don't want to concentrate too much on that. I feel that, I mean, and I'm, I'm going to just like say I'm biased because I grew up playing so many different sports and every night of the week I had a, I, I played a different sport and it really, I, I truly like, I have, I've drank, I, I'm, I've consumed a lot of the Kool-Aid that I, I really truly, like I built, I have lifelong friendships. Um, I learned work ethic. I learned, you know, perseverance, my parents would probably say stubbornness, um, just like just determination, just like dig in yeah. and go hard. Um, but also teamwork. And I, 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 it would be a shame if I missed out on that. I would, I would feel that I would, I would have suffered for not being able to participate in that. And, and by the way, everyone's biased. Everyone has their own bias. True. Everyone has their own experience. Their experience shapes and forms their opinion. I, too, feel the same way about the value of sport. I bet you there's a whole bunch of people that are going to hear this podcast that that did not grow up participating in sport and, and maybe don't see value in it. Or or maybe they found value in something else, like being a member of a band or or being part of an, sort of an artist group or, or, you know, whatever all those people do, I, whatever all those people do. You know what I'm saying? I could just this. I was I was always poor artistically. I was never good artistically. So I was also was like a theater kid. Too, so. Oh, so you were just good at everything. You're one of these annoying kids. It was just Sorry. good at everything, right? <laughs> Sam, were you were you a guy involved in sports growing up? Was that a big part of your upbringing? It was a. I mean, sports, like big capital S sports, was like absolutely part of my upbringing. Um, but you know, I I played very few organized ones. I, I played on baseball teams for a while when I was I was younger. Um, I have a very weird relationship with minor hockey because it it's it was always this exclusive club that I wasn't invited to. Ah. Um, and and that's not a slight against my parents. That's not a slight against my school. It's just I, you know I, I remember growing up, the boys who played hockey walked around like they owned the place, and they were sort of taught that at a young age that they're better than everyone. And and you know I I don't think that culture has gone away, and I, I think the other thing was just. You know, I, I, I am a white middle class guy. Uh, my parents could have enrolled me in hockey if I was, I was really interested in it, but it would have mean, you know, we wouldn't have gone on ski trips or something like that, right? And, and I sort of think about it, and I'm just sort of like, you know, there's, there's immediately a class divide. There's an immediate, you know, very apparent divide when you're a kid that, that these boys over here can play hockey and their parents dump money into them doing it. And that becomes their identity. They wear their jackets at school. And that started when they were like six, seven years old. Yeah. And, 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 
you know, then you'd get to gym class and of course they'd be better than you at everything. And, and you know, the hockey players would have their little club over here and the rest of us would kind of, yeah, kind of fight for scraps. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's absolutely tremendous benefit. I mean, when I hear about, you know, like the Tiger Skate Club, like to me, that is the crown jewel of what positive, inclusive introduction to sport at a young age should be. And and I kind of feel sometimes like minor hockey is like the absolute opposite of that. Huh. It's it's been neat for me to I stepped on the I mean the, the minor hockey season was so decimated for, and 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 so many other things obviously. But in our family's personal experience, it was why it's first year. We're super excited. I was the assistant coach. We're really, um, but it was really neat. It's it's really neat to see. I mean, these are five year olds, but to see the 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 makeup of which kids are participating and they are all over the map in every context. And uh, it was something that I was really excited about. Now, how, how, how long that goes or how, you know, at, at what age that starts to change, I don't know. Um, but it was just an interesting observation to make. Yeah. I mean, my dad uh, was the director of campus recreation at the U of A for oh, wow. 30 some years. And so it's really funny because I was, you know, gunning for varsity and I ended up being on a varsity team. But and so did my sister. What, at U of A? Yeah. What? Which one? <laughs> Track really my sister was on the basketball team I was just about to stereotype you and ask if you were a high jumper What did you do in track? Oh, uh, triple jump and long jump triple jump and long jump. Yeah, I love triple jump I don't know why triple when jump I would do, is when fascinating. I would do, okay, okay, okay track, But the point was <laughs> the point was is my dad always said The best end to anything any any sport any game is a tie because everyone participated it's just about he's always he's always about it's about participation do you think he actually believes that yes to his very core he organized intramurals and it's just about getting maximum number of people yeah. participating and so that to me is like to that point around the tiger skate club but it's about getting people involved and getting people participating i mean another point is yeah in high school and university like steer clear of the hockey players and the football players like do not go those guys those guys well there's a there's a uh and 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 then i'm going to be the guy that's going to go not all hockey players right i'm going to be the guy that goes not all football players and then we're going to start this conversation and hey listen if if, if these conversations are going to happen um in a fair manner in an open-minded manner they're going to happen on this forum we're not afraid of these types of conversations brian says dr holt who's on your panel who is a legend by the way it says Dr. Holt is right. The sports system needs to tie funding to larger societal goals like yeah. diversity, inclusion, equity. And then, says Brian, change will occur. Funding can drive change. Uh, I should probably read a couple of messages from our sponsors. Considering we've gone about an hour with nothing. Uh, so, so let me show you this. Uh, from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. This is another submission from a real talker with apologies to those of you. Oh, Sam, you don't, that's fine. You know what? We'll, we'll save it for Monday. No, for Tuesday. We're off Monday. We're taking Monday off. Give me that I photo. Apologize, no, guys. It, it's fine, Sam. You owe all of us ice cream now. That's fine. Sarah and I know. I'm we, fine with that. Yeah, we're, we're totally fine with that. So if you just quickly run out and grab a couple dilly bars for us, that'd be great. As a matter of fact, why don't you grab us $1.99 peanut buster parfaits? You know, the ones with that creamy soft serve and the rich hot fudge at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, the six of them at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Are you telling me you already have it ready? Are you telling me you've already got the Samuel Brooks? Look at this. 
I should have worn my glasses because I've lost my monitor. I can't even tell what the username is here. Okay, let me put my glass. Am I seriously this guy now? I got to put my glasses on so I can read. I've, I've become this guy. All right. There you have it. Still can't read it. Sam, can you read that for me? Who's the handle? Amisa four 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 four. Amisa quadruple four. Got my real talk RJ peanut butter parfait complete with real rich hot fudge. fudge. I just blew it. Real hot fudge. Rich Come hot. on, man. Come Sorry. on. Sorry. <laughs> Get it together. But maybe that's our customization. It's real talk. It's real, real. rich <gasps> hot. Fudge. Real hot fudge. Yes. Rich. Real hot fudge reminds me of the lady that spilled her McDonald's coffee in her lap, and then she was, and then they're like, they don't call it real. real hot. It's not real hot. It's it's just the proper temperature. It's rich hot fudge. <laughs> Dairy Queen has seriously had eleven minutes worth of advertising this week. We're going to invoice them double. We're just excited, wouldn't you be? If Dairy Queen was a partner, dollar ninety nine peanut butter parfaits, as Brianna pointed out the other day, two for four twenty. Check him out this May long weekend. Also, big shout out to Todd's Mechanical. Uh, Todd has been with us through the very beginning. He said, "He said I like it." He said, "What you guys are doing is just uh, just like what I did." He had his his traditional conventional career in oil and gas. Wanted to spend more time with his family. Wanted to wanted to write his own ticket, so to speak. And he decided that he was going to be Edmonton's best plumber. He wanted to be Edmonton's best source for plumbing and heating work, and that's exactly what he's become. Just read his Google reviews. Check out his Facebook reviews. Write this number down. Anytime you have an issue, you want the expert on site right away, an expert you can trust, one that has the stamp of approval from Real Talk. It's Todd's Mechanical at 780-499-7598. If you're in a panic and you have flooding happening at your house and this is happening in real time, check out RyanJesperson.com under the Sponsors tab. You'll find Todd's mechanical there as well. The team at Park Power powering our hashtag Real Talk RJ is offering you 70 bucks off your first bill. If you bring your business over residential, commercial, doesn't matter to them. Internet, electricity, natural gas, 70 bucks off with the promo code 2021-Real Talk. And make sure you check out their Instagram, their Instagram with tips on how to improve the electrical safety in your own home. I love it. The team at Clean Air Club at cleanairclub.ca wants you to save money and breathe easy it's as simple as logging onto their website entering the size of furnace filter you need and then you just wait you don't wait long the next day oftentimes they'll have furnace filter replacements on your front doorstep you're going to pay less than you would in the big box store your family's going to breathe easy you'll save money at cleanairclub.ca we also want to give a big shout out to the team at Alta Moving and Storage. We know that this is the time of year that many of you are going to be changing locations, whether you're taking advantage of a hot real estate market and downsizing, whether it's time for your family to upsize, whether you're getting the heck out of Dodge. This is the company, Alberta owned, family owned, that prides itself on coming up with solutions that work for you. No more stress around the big 18 wheel moving van outside the front of the, you know, it's idling in the street. You're not ready to go yet. You still need to have a cry in little Sally's first ever bedroom, but the movers need you to go. That's not how they do it at Alta Moving and Storage. Check them out online at altastorage.ca and you tell them Real Talk sent you. Our thanks to all of our sponsors. Now, we are going to be getting into trash talk in a little bit, but we've got a, a ton of other emails to get to as well. These don't qualify as rants and raves. Uh, these don't qualify as, as things that require the torqued up horsepower of our music bed and our collective rage. 
these are just bits of correspondence that you've shared with us and we always want to make time for them appreciated this from anna who is in touch with the show to talk at ryan she says after your conversation uh, about white noise that documentary about about white supremacy and, and right-wing politics in the u.s and elsewhere anna says i i, I downloaded the film with some trepidation as to what you were saying in your interview, it, it, it disturbed me a great deal. And it really is amazing to me that there are people out there actually saying these hateful things and believing them. Now, maybe I shouldn't be surprised considering some of the things I've heard people here in my neck of the woods in central Alberta saying around these issues. But the intolerance of different people is striking. And it says, I guess the most shocking thing was at the end of the film. I don't think this is really a spoiler alert, but. She says none of, of really the three main characters that were profiled felt any responsibility for the views they were pushing from their positions of power. It didn't seem to occur to them at all that their views were empowering people and, and inspiring people to violence against those who are unlike them. Anna says, I'm left to shake my head and hope that these people disappear along with their views. I think she means out of the public eye. She says history will not be kind to these perspectives that from Anna. I appreciated this from Edmonton City Councilor Bev Esslinger, who wrote into the show. She says, I, I listened to Real Talk, the podcast on my daily walk. Thank you, Councilor. She says, I was really happy to hear you addressing a while back gender based violence. And she said that you're probably going to get a lot of negative comments. So I wanted to add a positive one. You know, the counselors referring to our panel a while back about domestic violence as a men's issue. And I had kind of predicted that I was going to hear from some people on that. Right. Just based on 15 years of broadcast experience, hosting those types of conversations. She said this is she said the show did a great job raising a very valuable issue. This is from a city counselor. OK, she says domestic violence rates in our city have increased through the pandemic so talking about this issue is very timely she says we're seeing numbers that suggest up to a 20 percent increase oftentimes week over week and these are the ones that are reported she says i appreciate the team raising awareness of this issue and talking about the role that men play it's often said it's not a women's problem but a community problem and addressing the attitudes of men and boys is so essential to changing the rates of gender based violence. She said, your speakers were interesting, did a good job addressing the issue. It is only by speaking up and challenging attitudes that this will change that from Counselor Bev Esslinger. We appreciate that. And I wanted to read this one from Kelsey. We were, we were just having a, a it was a I don't know if casual is the right word. We were having a candid, impromptu, spontaneous, unscripted conversation. Let me be clear. Unscripted goes without saying on this show. I don't know what to the only thing if you make me nervous in life. People say do you get nervous like, you know, working hockey games in front of 18,000 people. You get nervous hosting the New Year's Eve, uh, you know, show out a city hall in front of 30,000 people. Never hand me a script and ask me to stick to it. I will be extremely nervous. But we were talking about jobs that that oftentimes and we're talking about PTSD. And this was during our conversations on Mental Health Awareness Week and some of the implications, the mental health implications of certain career paths that people choose. And one of them that we noticed, we had talked about tow truck drivers that oftentimes are, are witness to some of the most devastating scenes you could possibly imagine. Right. Volunteer firefighters. People were saying oftentimes these are the firefighters in the smaller communities that are called out they have their day jobs and they're called out to these horrific highway crashes you know without some of the supports that you might have in some of the bigger cities kelsey reached out to us and, and said 
I used to be a victim services worker. We had talked about, I had talked about how I feel for police officers. I mean, I obviously feel for families. Don't get me wrong. But police officers that have to do that notification, that have to go knock on the door. When somebody opens the door with that little bit of a confused look, like why are the cops here? But then they don't realize that their entire life is about to collapse or at least change forever. So Kelsey says, I I used to be a a VS worker, victim services, and I work directly with the RCMP. And and part of a victim services worker's job is going out with RCMP members to notify people of their loved one's death. Now, the member would give the basic information and then leave. And it's VS, it's victim services who remains with the individual as it sinks in. And as they realize all the questions they have and as they experience all of their initial emotions the most difficult aspect of the job is also very rewarding to be that initial support in a person's most difficult and raw moments it's a very interesting position to be in it's during those moments that all egos that all internal thought that your own personal needs and judgments need to be completely set aside now these individuals experiencing this loss most of the time do not remember our faces They forget many of our words or our actions. They they forget what we're wearing or anything about us. We were merely there for them in their moment of great need. These were always the absolutely most humbling and honest times. Now, the second visit with these individuals or these families, generally, I'd have to completely reintroduce myself. They may vaguely remember me, but only in very general terms. It may be morbid to say, says Kelsey, but I always felt honored to be part of those notifications she says thank you for the real conversations on this podcast that from kelsey i thought that was pretty incredible that 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 meant a lot to have her share that with us that's that's a job that's a role that i have a tough time putting myself in being there for somebody at the very first moment where it there's just you're stunned right you're you're devastated i had never considered that piece that she shared about that they don't even recognize you later on just they're just so taken aback they're in shock they're i mean the whole myriad of emotions um because everyone's you know has their own response that's uh heavy it's one it is heavy and and it's and we're not afraid of heavy no and, and we're also not afraid to have a little fun um one of the things that that i'm reminded of every single day is is the diverse makeup of this audience mm. right you saw it yesterday totally different scenario a lot of people writing in about the true barnes interview they're like <laughs> great to see a conservative perspective really appreciate you reaching out to the and then other people, and are, then, going, people and are going then? what the sweet f-, you know it's not trash talk yet just wait <laughs> oh just wait but but that's the whole idea. So whether we're talking about barriers to sport or whether we're talking about domestic violence or, t- or taxing careers or, or mental health or the economy or crypto or uh, whatever. I just about blew some of the surprises we have coming up next week. I'm just I, I don't know. That, that can be up to you whether or not we're going to tease those. But 
the makeup of this audience is pretty remarkable. And, and that's when you know, I think that an audience really is growing to a point that's exciting is when you can start talking about something and people come at it from an area of expertise and say, as a member of this community, let me explain to you a little bit more about what you were speculating about, right? Or what you teed up. And, and, and that's one of the really exciting things about what we're building here. And when I say we, I mean, I'm pointing at the screen. I'm talking to you that has this coming through your your earbuds as you're walking your dog, you know, Counselor Esslinger and everybody else that's listening to the show or on the road trip to wherever you're going on this May long weekend to get outside. Thank you for being a part of this community. We're also so grateful to our sponsors like Eden Landscaping. Sherry is just looking unbelievable in our studio. We do know her time with us in studio is coming to a close. Yeah, don't get too attached, Ryan. I've decided. No, I do I, not. Right, right from the. She's mine. I've actually kind of been cheering against her because I don't get to take her home. So, bef- so after you leave, I close all the windows so there's no light. I'm starving. You star- do not. I'm, I'm starving her of water. <laughs> that'll show. That'll show everybody. He doesn't do that, folks. He I doesn't do, do that. that. The team at Eden's been coming up with solutions for people that are looking to turn dreams into reality for more than 20 years. You find evidence all over their website at landscapeedmonton.ca. They're problem solvers. Have you picked out a spot for sharing the yard yet? Or are you still consulting with the I've, team on that? I've got a couple, but I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna need to... You got a couple ideas? Yeah. I'm just throwing some things around right now. How much longer do we get? Or like a week or something like that? Something like that. Something like a week? Sam, it's going to be hard to say goodbye to Sherry. It is going to be really hard to say goodbye to Sherry. We're going to see that the camera four is going to be so much more wide open now. We're going to have to keep our desks a little more clean. I might just like snip a couple boughs off and hang them from the ceiling in front of Sherry just so we can have the offense. Interesting. Um, No. You're, you're not you don't a, you don't get to do any kind of pruning. It would technically be the, it would technically be the first harvest off of, of Sherry is. <laughs> Um, no. Okay. Hard no. Eden Landscaping, <laughs> I would imagine, would recommend against this type of activity. That's why you go to them, the expert voice at landscapeedmonton.ca. The team at Grand Dog Essentials, they're doing deliveries literally to doorsteps like Sarah's, like mine. Um, Sarah's located at 16434. Get, <laughs> Get right out Quality of here. Quality raw food. Quality raw food. Uh, Yuri reached out. uh, An audience member, Yuri, reached out yesterday. He says, I catch it. He says, you know what I'd love to do is bring the team from Grand Dog on. So they get it. He's like a lot of questions about raw food. My dog's on kibble and I don't know what's going on. And sure. But Yuri also knows that you can go to granddog.ca and talk one on one to a nutritionist that'll design a custom program. I know this because our dogs are eating different customized. Yeah, we're those people, but they've never looked so healthy. Moses and Monroe at granddog.ca. If you use the promo code real talk, they're going to give you 10 percent off your first time order. The team at Power Ed wants to remind you that bettering yourself through through online on demand learning does not have to be a month's long exercise so whether you're pursuing more knowledge awareness or certification on things like digital wellness or artificial intelligence or allyship and inclusion or digital transformation also would be a great band name by the way digital transformation you kidding me the the album could be called something like segway i don't know just 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 freewheeling here Power Ed has courses, including Digital Wellness 101, Optimizing Time and Energy, that that can be completed in two or three hours. You can learn more about this. If you want to learn more about your own digital wellness or other areas of your life that could be improved, powered.ca is a great place to look. That, of course, through Athabasca University. 
And then there's the team at Local Waste. Do we need to remind you how much they love to talk trash? They love to talk trash so much so that they came up with this idea for a segment where everybody could blow off a little steam here on Real Talk. But they also talk trash through the week with their customers and their potential partners, people that are trying to figure out how they can streamline their spending and stop being taken advantage of by the big garbage guys. Local Waste is not going to try to squeeze every penny out of your business. They want to grow the relationship with you as your business grows. Mikkel and Lauren and Chris is who you're looking to talk to. You can find all the information online. Just look under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Each and every Friday, the team at Local Waste also presents a little something we like to call Trash Talk. All right, I need a little sip of Java before I get on my way here because you've got me talking today. Uh, this is one where you're going to want the earmuffs. I'm talking like the whole segment. This is not designed for the five-year-olds, my friends. Denise writes in and says, I would like to begin by talking about windshield wipers. Why are they designed in a way that makes it so complicated to figure out installation and replacement? Today, I cracked my windshield trying. Was she using like a like a, a crescent wrench? Denise, wh- how did you crack it anyway? And she says, and by the way, while we're at it, would everybody please stop spitting on the stairs? She says, many of us are relying on the great outdoors and the beautiful river valley for exercise, fresh air. Would you mind hawking your loogies into the bush? Nobody wants to slide or slip on your bubbled up slimy pile of germs. Denise signs off. Have a hell of a great long weekend. Real talkers. That from Denise. I love that one. This one from Susan, who says, Based on your past conversations on Real Talk, I do not support taxpayers covering daycare. I believe a parent is the best caretaker of their child. I see babies being dropped off at daycare 6.30 in the morning, picked up at 5, probably spending less than three hours with a living parent. Nobody in daycare will love the child like his or her parent would. It takes planning to have a child, including saving up for a house, maybe renting until the child's in school so the one parent can raise the child instead of institutionalizing them is a better plan. People who live in big, expensive houses and drive new vehicles do not get my support. Sorry, not sorry. That from Susan. I'm sure everyone will agree with her and no one will be upset by what they just heard. Tyler says, well, there's been some really poignant points made by Mr. Jesperson. Well, thank you, Mr. Tyler. About the critique of the supposedly right and honorable Jason Kenny. Ryan made a very good point, a very good point the other day about how challenging it is to be a leader during a pandemic. The people I'd like to mention, people in positions of authority, pastors, imams, school principals, doctors, business owners, foremen, teachers, the list is endless. All these people have worked so hard during the pandemic to keep the province going. They at least try to keep their shit together. Hey, Kenny, maybe you should too. Leadership is not just a nautical term for harbor masters everywhere, but actually making decisions for the good of the people. If you don't want to lead, kindly pass your magic eight ball around, the one you use in caucus meetings that's guided your tire fire of government, and its wisdom will choose our next premier. Signed, a frustrated Tyler. What about this one from Denon? Denon says, I'm a licensed professional engineer currently working also toward my part-time MBA studies at the University of Alberta. I take pride in contributing to the local economy and driving business growth and innovation. Given the recent post-secondary budget cuts, it's become apparent the university is trying to cover the loss of funds by driving up the cost of tuition for targeted professional programs. The tuition hikes are absolutely outrageous in scale and are not consistently applied across 
across the board. They target some programs more than others. It's unfair and it's politically driven. He goes on to say the tuition hike is financially devastating for many of us. It'll drive people away from studying for their MBAs. Can you imagine having to sit back and absorb an extra $9,600 a year? I was almost in tears after I read this. MBA students are equipping themselves with the skills to become entrepreneurs and business leaders of tomorrow. We would otherwise use this money to start new businesses, to stimulate a decimated provincial economy. Instead, we will be forced to drown in student debt even longer. This is ridiculous. That from Denon. How about this one from Alana, who says kids are going back to school on Tuesday. When we study stats, it's pretty clear. When kids and teachers stay home, numbers fall rapidly. Is the government really trying to tell us that closing schools and seeing a drop in cases is unrelated? Now, I know that this government doesn't think too highly about the intelligence of Albertans. I'll refer you to that the curriculum cluster fuck, but it actually hurts my heart to be losing faith and trust in the one beacon we had in Alberta. I am so disappointed. So disappointed. I am Alberta strong. We are Alberta strong. Jason Kenney and his government are an Alberta disappointment and Alberta disaster. That from Alana and making his Real Talk debut today. It's Merrick the Red-Headed Prick. He says, Drew Barnes yesterday, more of that same bullshit talking point about wishing the world was the same when oil was 100 bucks a barrel. It's fucking infuriating. Everybody wants to make Alberta great again. Unfortunately, there's amnesia when they bitch and whine about pipelines taking too long or Alberta not being treated fairly by the rest of the planet. Nine years Stephen Harper had as prime minister with conservatives running Alberta. Where are the interprovincial pipelines? Stuck in court the conservative way? Didn't work. Why didn't Harper reform the electoral system? Why is it the current government's fault that Harper and Kenny didn't author something different? Comparing tax rates to Canada the U.S. is the reason for Alberta's decline is laughable at best. To Drew's constituents that believe his gaslighting of cherry-picked half-truths, I have plenty of bridges and property on the moon for sale with your names on them. Big hugs. Happy May Long to all at Real Talk from Merrick, the red-headed prick. And a happy May Long from all of us here on the team as well. We wish you safety. Play nice. Play distant. And we'll see you back here live Tuesday morning, 8.30 Mountain Time. Until then, peace.